You can go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> we have been thinking together about radical hospitality. I'm assuming, Kevin, that I've got lots of amplification up here. I sound like the voice of God in my own head. Isn't that great? No? Okay. Is that, that's what you're going for? Okay, good. We have been talking about I will get a little... radical hospitality. Radical hospitality means introducing Jesus to others, inviting people into our personal space, building a relationship, and asking the deep questions of life. Radical hospitality requires introducing, inviting, building and asking. It requires it. And we have this picture today in the book of John. Now, there's lots of Johns in the passage that we're about to read, and I'm going to just give us a little primer for those of you who this is new for. John the Evangelist is writing the book. John the Baptist is, well, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, and we have a third John, Simon Peter's dad, John, just in case you weren't confused, okay? So I'm going to try to keep these characters straight uh, today, but we want to think about radical hospitality through this passage. John the Baptist does something amazing at the beginning um, of the second little calling here. First, in this first section, we know something about John. He knows who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is. I mean, he, he gives a beautiful explanation of who Jesus is. And we know something else. The evangelist, the writer of the book, also knows who Jesus is. He uses 12 different names for Jesus to describe Jesus in the last 31 verses of this chapter. In fact, there are 13 if you know Greek. There's 12 in English. There's 13 in Greek. So we have been thoroughly introduced to the Messiah. And John the Baptist knows who he is. He starts by saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he repeats it later, behold, the Lamb of God. And you can read in there the literary thing that maybe John said it twice, who takes away the sins of the world. He knows who Jesus is. But we also know about John that he knows who he is. John the Baptist knows who he is. He knows that he is not the Messiah. Now, this is critical for just a moment. But John knows he's not the Messiah. He knows what his role is. He knows who he was supposed to, what he's supposed to do. He even knows that he is supposed to turn his disciples over to Jesus. And this is the radical thing that begins the second half of the story. This would have been unheard of in the ancient world. Rabbis didn't turn their students over to other rabbis. That's an admittance of something that rabbis are pretty uncomfortable with. You want to know the difference between God and a college professor? God doesn't think he's a college professor. That's a joke. That was a really funny joke. Um, yeah, Darcy's not here. I would have laughed with Darcy. I mean, college professors get really, really, really competitive, don't they? They don't. They don't the rabbis were worse. They didn't turn their disciples over to other disciples. It never happened. And when it did, it was rare and odd, and it was a clear sign that the, turn, the rabbi who turned his disciples over, he knew that there was a greater teacher that could take his students further. And so John begins by turning his students over. He begins by introducing Jesus. This is our first word. 
he does he he doesn't really do more than is necessary. He doesn't do more than make the invitation. Jesus is walking by. Andrew and an unnamed disciple are there with John, and John simply says, "Behold the Lamb of God." That's it. He just introduces. No more. He didn't do anything else. And here's why John can simply make the introduction. This is why John the Baptist can just make the introduction, because he knows who he is and who Jesus is. I want you to notice something here. There's no hard sales pitch. There's no pressure. And this is huge. There's not an ounce of anxiety in John the Baptist about this introduction. Not an ounce of it. He isn't worried that his disciples may follow Jesus instead of him. He isn't worried that Jesus may not say or do the right thing. He doesn't panic that he overstepped his bounds. He isn't desperately holding on to the final outcome. He just makes the introduction. Why? Because he knows who Jesus is. Behold the Lamb of God. And he knows who he is. He knows that he's not the Messiah. I'm going to give you good news today. You are not the Messiah. Even better news. I am not the Messiah. We are not responsible for changing the hearts of human beings. We are responsible for making the introduction. Now, this should let us off some really big hooks. Do we have a longing for people to come to a knowledge of Jesus that he's the Lamb of God? Of course we do. May we pray really, really hard that God changes their heart? Of course we should. Should we cry out to God for our loved ones who don't know him? Yes, for sure we should do that. Are we responsible for changing their hearts? Amen, amen, no. And I want to tell you why it's good news. One, we can just leave that to Jesus. And two... If we try to change men's hearts, it'll be for something that looks like us. I'm glad I'm not the Messiah. Because over time, if I wasn't simply responsible for the introduction, and I was responsible for the changing, people would start to look like me. And I know me. And I know you. I'd rather people look like Jesus. And so these two disciples, Andrew and someone who's unnamed, they follow Jesus. Now, you're saying, yes, they come to know him as the Lamb of God. That's actually not the word. They literally start walking behind him. <laughs> That's the word here. Later, they're going to follow him. We'll get there. But they just start following him around until Jesus is like, you know, when someone's following you. <laughs> he turns. It's the, actually, you know, John's not just writing things here. He's telling us what happened. Jesus turns. He turns and faces Andrew and the, and the other disciple and says, what are you seeking? He asks this loaded question. We're going to set the loaded question aside in just a minute because we're going to get back to it. The, the disciples, humanity, pretty simple in this conversation. Jesus is going deep right away, but they don't know it. So what they hear is, what do you want? And they do something that's pretty amazing, and it goes to our next thing. So hospitality requires introducing Jesus to others, but hospitality requires inviting others into our personal space. Wah, wah. What? Yeah, 
It does. And so they, he turns around and says, what, they hear, what do you want? It's not actually what he's asking, but they turn, that's what they hear. And so they, they say this, that they do something that would have been common in the ancient world. Okay, this is a common response. They say, where are you staying? It is the modern day equivalent of fishing for an invitation. Hey, where are you staying? Jesus would have known this. This was a common cultural thing. It wasn't rude, but it, was, it is a subtle way to put out there, we would like to come to your house and get to know you. But in a way that Jesus could say yes or no without losing face, right? So they say, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come on, I'll show you. Come on, you can come and I'll show you. In fact, Jesus says, come and you will see. Again, another loaded statement. We'll get there in just a minute. But what they would have heard was, well, come on, come to my house. Notice that Andrew and the unnamed disciple do not call Jesus the Lamb of God when they ask the question. You need to notice that. They call him rabbi. They call him his most common name. I mean, even the people who put Jesus to death call him rabbi. There's no question that Jesus was a rabbi. Nobody doubts that he was. He was a teacher, and he had students. So they go to, like, the lowest name that John uses. By the way, I'm not telling you all the names that John uses. you got to go and find them for yourself. It's homework time, okay? But there's, there's 12 English ones, 13 Greek ones. Extra credit if you can find the 13th. And so they don't call him the Lamb of God. They don't call him Messiah. They don't call him any of that. They call him Rabbi. They don't, they don't know him fully yet. They don't know him like John the Baptist does. But they've been introduced. There's a little familiar ground here. And so they say Rabbi. And in a very real sense, I want you to know that Jesus and Andrew and, and the unnamed disciples are, are strangers at some level. They have some common connection through John, but they don't know each other that well. They're strangers. They don't call him Messiah. And so this brings us to something that we can learn about inviting. We really often confuse the inviting of hospitality with hard lines of host and guest. Right? We do that, don't we? I'm the host, you're the guest. And there are really, really hard lines. And sometimes this is, can create a little bit of an uncomfortable hierarchy of hospitality. You cannot come any closer than my invitation. How dare you ask where I'm staying, right? The fishing. I'm super offended that I went fishing and you didn't tell me I could come over, right? We've been quoting Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It is about radical, ordinary hospitality, which she says is this. Radical, ordinary, in radical, ordinary hospitality, host and guests are interchangeable. If you come to my house for dinner and notice that I'm still teaching a math lesson to a child and my laundry remains on the dining room table unfolded, you roll up your sleeves and fold my laundry or set the table or load the dishwasher or feed the dogs. Radically ordinary hospitality means that hosts are not embarrassed to receive help and guests know that their help is needed. A family of God gathering daily together needs each and every person. Hosts and guests are permeable roles. Freaks us out, especially in this part of the world. Come on, let's, we got to talk today. In this part of the world, this freaks us out. I want to look perfect. I want to sound perfect. 
I want you to think I am perfect. And I can't invite you over because I haven't folded the laundry. Jesus has no issues inviting these guys. And he's God. Maybe he knew this whole exchange was going to happen and he walked there on purpose. Maybe. He's also human. Maybe he didn't. He offers a lot of people a lot of hospitality they don't take in the Gospels. So he invites people over. And in this relationship, we see it's permeable. The guests in this case are the hosts to begin with. Can we come to your house? You see what happens there? And Jesus says, yeah, you can come. Come on over. I imagine, you know, this was a, this was a, this was a lot of help. I imagine that everyone pitched in. That the day went. And so we need to submit to the gospel definition of hospitality. We need to be a lot less precious about our space, a lot harder to offend if we're not invited over this time, quick to exhibit the humility necessary to be an imperfect host and ready to co-host as the guest through simple acts of kindness. We've got to grow and submit to the gospel hospitality that Jesus is showing us here. We have to grow and submit to the gospel hospitality that Jesus is showing here. We, let me let, I, I gave you good news earlier, you're not the Messiah, and we know your house is messy. We know this because our house is messy. We get it. I often say in Living Waters, who do you think you're kidding? Nobody. You can put all the effort you want into being the perfect host. We get that you're not perfect. All we're looking for is some charitable hospitality. That's all we're looking for. And so this brings us to our third point. Hospitality requires building a relationship. Andrew the unnamed, and the unnamed disciple are not complete strangers to Jesus. We've already said this, but they're strangers. And uh, there's a loose connection with John, but it's a loose one. And so Jesus invites him over his house. And in 139, in verse 39, something else amazing happens. They spend the whole day. I mean, gulp. This is why we don't invite people over to our house, by the way. And we're just, <laughs> when are you leaving? You know. They stay the whole day. They stay all day. And maybe overnight, by the way. It, it's a little vague here. They may be spending the night. I mean, <laughs> really double gulp, right? Like, what? You lost me, Brian. I'll do the first two, but not this third one. <laughs> well, what is Jesus doing? He is building a relationship, and he's transferring the introduction to an invitation, to a question. He's building a relationship with these two. He's taking them from John's disciples and offering them to be his disciples. He's getting to know them. He's eating with them. He's building and forming a relationship. Now, Jesus knows who he is, too. He knows he has all authority. That's not an issue. But he also knows something else. He doesn't yet have authority with Andrew and the unnamed disciple. He doesn't have that yet. John's got that authority. So he invites them over for the day to get to know one another. They want to know him. He wants to know them. He wants to explain why they should change rabbis. Why they should come to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why he's the Messiah. He wants to build a relationship. And he wants to eat and drink and talk about the family. 
He wants to get to know them. In order to do this together, Jesus had to have something in his life that we call margin. He had to have some margin in his life. He had to. And margin is a concept, concept that has been made popular in Christian circles lately, and it simply means that Christians must be countercultural in the use of our time and money, not spending every minute and every dime, living well within our means so that we have the time and money to be hospitable to others. This is margin. And it's countercultural, especially here. All over, really, but especially here. People are maxed out, literally, on their calendars and in their wallets, and most of them are Christians. Many, many Christians follow this too. I'm not just talking about something out there. We talk a lot about being countercultural, and Christians should be countercultural. This may be the biggest countercultural gift we can offer is that you can actually live your life well below your means. You don't have to spend every minute, you don't have to spend every it's freedom. It's freedom. Jesus made a conscious choice to live in margin. And people who are looking on to Christians and seeing what might be there to offer will be drawn and invited when they see a group of people living within margin. It is the embodiment. Margin is the embodiment of Jesus' promise. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. We've got to be the walking icons of rest. We can say it all we want, but if we look like we're maxed out so much that we can't simply be hospitable, people are not going to believe us. They're going to look and go, huh? And so we at Church of the Apostles, I just, we, we have been talking about this, and we value rest. This includes rhythm and margin. We're going to live below our means. We're not filling every day all of the time. Now, I am aware that when I make this statement, I am... Um, I'm toying with the altars of what I think is probably a regional idol. I have everyone's attention. I think it's a regional idol we're talking about that we get, we get, we need to join Jesus in standing against. I think a lot of people have found their identity and how busy they are and how much money they have. And we need to be careful that we're not following along. We have to. I get I'm toying with an idol, so I'm going to pause for about 30 seconds. I got one more thing to say. I'm just going to ask you to take a deep breath with me. Do you have margin? Are you willing to create margin for the sake of gospel radical hospitality? We're going to do a mini, you close your eyes, I'll watch the time. I mean it, close your eyes. Before we go any further, spend a minute with God. How are you doing? Okay, 
Back with me. This is probably the area that where we most need to get our radical on. This is probably the area. And here's the starting point. We must learn the value of the divine no. We are not entitled to everything the world system has to offer. We are entitled to everything God's good creation has to offer, but that's different than the system of the world. We're not entitled to it as Christians. We have made a choice to say no to some of that, even the good things. We can't do everything and have everything. We must be discerning before God. We must take seriously the caution that our yes means yes and our no means no. Jesus the Messiah, the prophet, the Lamb of God, one who baptizes with the Spirit, Son of God, Rabbi, Teacher, Christ, Anointed One, Son of Joseph, Nazarene, King of Israel, Son of Man, has built margin in his life so that he is ready when Andrew and the other apostles said, can we come over? Jesus has done this. Yes, you can. Let's get to know each other. Let's build relationships. And then, last but not least, Jesus gets to the asking. He's been introduced by John the Baptist. He accepted the invitation of the apostles to come over, right? It's permeable. <laughs> so actually, Jesus accepts the invitation here, by the way. The apostles are like, can we come over? Yeah, sure. He has margin in his life, and so he has room to build a relationship with them. And then somewhere, we're not told, but it's at the beginning, somewhere in that conversation, Jesus re-asks his question, I think. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? I think he re-asks his question somewhere. What are you seeking? The 1987 hit single by the Irish rock band U2 entitled I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For bemoans the common longing of humanity. Bono, the lead singer, cries in song, I have kissed honey lips, felt the healing in the fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. I have spoke with the tongues of angels. I have held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night. It was cold as a stone, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Radical hospitality means introducing Jesus to others and inviting people into our personal space and building a relationship so that we can ask the deepest questions of life. What are you seeking? Or as we've been asking him around here, who am I? Why am I here? Where do I belong? We have been doing and will keep doing things as a church in this space and in our neighborhood to practice hospitality. We have had several events and had great people from the community and people from the synagogue and ourselves. We all came and we hung out and we've had a good time and there's more planned and that'll come and it'll be great. And last week we, we, we went out into our neighborhood and we joined with, by the way, you can't always be hospitable, so you team up with somebody. We couldn't have a thing here uh, last Saturday, two Saturdays ago, so we went ahead and we did it with our friends up the street at Christ Presbyterian Church. They hosted it for us. And we all were hospitable to people from Hartford and New Haven and all over the place to help us learn a little bit about human trafficking. And this coming Saturday, we're going to be hospitable in a new way. We're going to be like the two disciples who are saying, can we come in? And we're going to go to businesses with signs, and we're going to be hospitable and say, we want to help you with something. You're supposed to have this up. Will you help us with something? 
Let us help you. It's going to be a permeable kind of hospitality. So we've done this together as a church, and that's great, and we're going to keep doing it, and I can't wait. It's going to energize us. But if we think that that's going to be enough, we've missed the other half of what I'm talking about. For the name of Jesus to be magnified, for his light to shine forth, we cannot stop there. Each of us needs to assess our practice of introducing and inviting and building and asking with our friends and our neighbors and our classmates and, yes, strangers. The next revival in Connecticut, I am convinced of it, and New England and probably the country, is going to happen through great conversations over a thousand cups of coffee where we get to know people and we build a relationship with them that allows us to ask the question, what are you searching for? That's a tough question to ask to a stranger. It is an easy question to ask to someone you love, someone you're friends with. It's an easy question. And I guarantee it'll work. I guarantee it. Why? Because of the end of the story. What happens? Andrew goes into the cycle again. He introduces his brother Simon to Jesus. He invites him to come. By the way, now talk about hospitality. Now these guys are inviting other people to come to Jesus' house. Okay, cool. He invites Simon to come to Jesus' house and hang out with him. They already had a relationship by being brothers. All right, so that was done. They had built that already. And then somewhere, someone asked Simon, what are you seeking? And Simon says, this is what I'm seeking. And Jesus changes his name. He tangibly answers one of the greatest questions of the human heart for Peter. Who am I? You're the rock. You're Peter. Guarantee it'll work. And then Peter walks with Jesus, and then he begins to introduce. and inv- You see it? And the world has changed through radical hospitality. We already had 30 seconds of quiet. Let's have 30 seconds more. I promise that's all. And what I want to do in this 30 seconds is I've laid a lot out there for you. Here's my question. Will you join Jesus in introducing, inviting, building, and asking? You bow your head and close your eyes. I'll watch the time.